Good morning again. Um, excited to be with you this morning as we continue through the book of Malachi. Um, again, if you're watching online or listening, we like to invite you to, you're with us in spirit. Um, but this morning, as we talk about, as we work through the book of Malachi, we find ourselves uh, moving from the center. Again, we've identified the center as something that in the Hebrew scrolls, the Hebrew writers would often put their major theme in the center. And again, the reason of that is because that's where the people who first open it. So if you want them to know, you put it in the center and then you span it out, right? It's kind of like how authors today put stuff on the back pages and then we read it and we know everything about the book. Same idea, right? But as we move out from the center, one of the interesting this happening is we got our major theme, right? We've been calling this, you know, Malachi uh, and, and talking about faithfulness in body and spirit. And, and so the first half of the book that we've covered so far is all about unfaithfulness. We see the unfaithfulness of the people. We see the unfaithfulness to the covenant they made with God, unfaithfulness in how they worship, unfaithfulness of priests. And even last week, we saw the unfaithfulness of husbands who were divorcing their wives for, for reasons that they just made up and because they wanted new wives. Right, And it's in the midst of all this unfaithfulness, especially the unfaithfulness of husbands, that God calls his people back to be faithful in body and spirit. The other thing that happens as we leave the center, right, um, is that we get to something called the eucatastrophe. Now, Ryan shared earlier that he's a nerd. That's why he knows Tolkien. I am not a nerd. I just like to pretend to be one, right? But I, too, appreciate Tolkien. And one of the things I appreciate about Tolkien, I always like to appreciate people who do things I cannot, right? This is a, a man who, for fun, made up languages, right? And he just did. And he made up languages and worlds, and this is what he did for fun, right? I bet he was great at parties, right? But also, in making up languages, he would even take our languages that we thought we knew and make up new words, right? And, and so you catastrophe comes from that. It's a new word. It's only used really in token, and, and no one else really says this is a word. But now we say it is because it's decades later. But the eucatastrophe talks about, it's a, it's a compound word of, of the Greek, compound word of the Greek. The eu just means good, right? Uh, the, the catastrophe really means sudden turn. Now, in our English language, we know catastrophic, right? Catastrophic is like something extremely unfortunate, um, something involving or causing sudden great damage or suffering. I just call that being a Mets fan, right? Like, like that's just catastrophic, right? Like, like, I understand catastrophic, but we tend to hear catastrophe and we think bad, right? But it's really a neutral word. It just means turning point. So when he says you catastrophe, he means that there's going to come a point in the story where the bad turns to good. One author wrapped it up like this, is that for token, the you catastrophe is a seemingly unconquerable situation turns to unforeseen victory through grace. And so in the biblical narrative, which the people of Malachi's day would have known these stories, they would have heard them in the synagogue, would have heard them from their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and family friends, they would have known some of these stories. I think the call of Abram, right, is a you catastrophe. That, like, that's where the story starts. If, if you kind of go back to Genesis 10, it's after the flood. Noah and his sons are, are sent out into the world to be fruitful and multiply, and diversity is seen as a good thing. Then you get to Genesis 11 as Babel, which a lot of us are commonly taught that Babel is like the people came together and, and they were united and they wanted to build and God didn't like that. We're going to unpack that sometime, but I want to tell you that reading is not necessarily the reading in the Hebrew, right? The reading in the Hebrew is that the people came together to enslave. 
The people came together as an empire. The people came together to literally, like, the same words that's used to build the Tower of Babel is the same root words that's used to the Egyptians and what they did to the Israelites, right? So Babel isn't God against universalism and people coming together because God literally wants people to come together, and God also sends us out. Babel is about using our power <laughs> to, to oppress others. It's by using our power and coming together so that we can hold on to our resources and enslave others and keep people trapped in, right? That's the story of Babel. It's not God hates universal and people coming together. It's God hates empire, which kind of tracks throughout the scripture, right? Like God does not like empire. When we think we're bigger than God or we think we're more powerful than God or we think we are God, God doesn't seem to like that very much, right? So you have the tragedy of Babel, and right after that, God calls this man named Abram, right? And it's a beautiful call because it's like, I'm gonna, I called you, Abram. Okay, cool. Where are we going? To the place I will show you. Yes, let's do it, right? But that's a you catastrophe because up until that point, you had not just the people disobeying God after the flood, but you had people now coming together to oppress one another. And so God calls up a new people, through Abram. That's a catastrophe. Another one that, that, that they should have known, especially as people who had just came out of oppression uh, of Babylon, Assyria, some of them, was Moses in the Red Sea, right? And Moses in the Red Sea, you remember that story, right? God has led them out of Egypt, led them out of slavery, showed power over all the Egyptian gods. They get to the point of the Red Sea and they're like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> like, we'd rather be in Egypt, we'd rather be suffering and enslaved and oppressed in Egypt than to die. Like, there's a whole big Red Sea. Now, I always get cynical because I don't know if you've ever seen the Red Sea, right? Like, whenever I saw the Red Sea as a kid, I was just like, wait a second, this is what they were scared about? And then, like, my Sunday school teacher had to remind me, like, no, 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 no. They couldn't swim. And I was like, oh, I can relate to that, you know? But then also there was Egyptians behind them trying to kill them, right? So they were trapped between the sea and the army. But that's a huge catastrophe because what happens there is that God shows up, right? And the sea is parted and they walk through. Another famous one is Esther. You remember the story of Esther, right? She is, is basically her whole life hiding her Jewish identity. She has a, an uncle, an adopted father, Mordecai, who's like protecting her. And, and she gets chosen to be the, the queen or, or one of really the queens, right? And she gets chosen to be the queen, but that's because the queen at the time had basically rebelled against the king. So they, you know, they, what they did in the Old Testament times, they, they killed her, right? And, and so Esther gets picked, but her whole life she's hiding her true identity. And the Eucatastrophe comes when Mordecai comes to her and says, you know what, Esther, um, this guy, Haman, wants to kill all of us, right? And, and remember, think about this for a second. Her whole life, she's had to deny her Jewish identity and hide it, right? And the one time that she gets to have Independence Day is like, you need to show you're Jewish because they're going to kill us, right? And, and the you catastrophe comes when Esther goes, but, like, if I go in front of the king unannounced, like, what happened to the other queen might happen to me. Like, I'm not supposed to do that, right? But the you catastrophe happens that she asks the people to pray, <laughs> And they gather around her, and they prayed, and they prayed for three days, and they fasted. And she goes to the courtyard, and, and the king not only has an audience, but you see redemption for her people that comes through it. So you catastrophe is the moment of the story where there's a turning point, and it's a turning point towards hope. But the reason I chose those three stories is not just because the, the people of Malachi would know them, is that what Malachi does at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, is to call his people to hope, but not without work to come. 
Because if you go back to Abram, yes, he's called, and God calls his new people, but that's before Isaac is promised. That's before Isaac comes. That's before what the Hebrew called the, the Akedah, or, or the binding of Isaac. That's after Ishmael. That's after Abimelech. That, that's after God fully makes a formal covenant with, with Abram to become Abraham. So you have the you catastrophe, but still work to be done. Moses and Israel walked through the Red Sea, but they still had journeys and years and decades ago before they got to the promised land. Work still had to be done. Esther goes before Ahasuerus, her, which we think is Xerxes or one of the Xerxes, but he, she goes before the Persian king. And, and it's not that her people are healed and saved right away. They actually have a couple days of festivals. There's prayer and fasting. There's a whole series of work that has to be done, including what didn't teach me this part in Sunday school, a lot of killing. Right? Like, I, I think the thing of the book of Esther is, like, peaceful. Like, what a movement of God. Right? Like, like she saved her people. You know how they saved the people? They killed a lot of people. Like, even in the story, there's a holiday where they killed some more people. Right? Like, but there's a lot of work to be done. And so what Malachi is doing here in the passage is not just pointing us to the day of hope, but pointing us to the hope to come with the reminder that we as people of hope have work to do. That's the genius of Malachi's you catastrophe. He's not just saying, here's a turning point in the story. The first half was bad. Second half is good. He's saying the second half, we have hope. That we are people of hope. But we also have to get to work. Because he wants his people to not just turn to hope, to not just be people of hope, but to hope with expectation. And what is this expectation they're supposed to have? If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Malachi 2. I'll be reading the last verse in chapter 2, which is 17. And then into the first five verses in chapter uh, 3. So Malachi 2, 17 to 3, 5. Starting in verse 17, it says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? I will send my manager, starting in, in chapter 3. I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the, the Lord you are seeking, the Lord Adonai, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you this morning that you have called us to hope. You have called us to have hope even when our world looks hopeless. That you have called us to light even if all we can see is dark. That you have called us to good even though evil seems to be triumphing and, and winning so easily. You have called us to hope. But God, help us to be people of hope with expectation with expectation that you are present and with us, 
with expectation that you are working among us, with expectation that the true light is already shining, with expectation that the, the word is already going out, with expectation that we as people of hope can partner with you to bring justice to our world. So God, we pray now this morning, as we think about not only the, the turning point, the catastrophe of Malachi, may we be reminded of the turning points of our lives, of our faith, of Jesus coming, of Jesus living, of Jesus dying, of Jesus being raised up, of Jesus going to heaven. And as we wait now, Lord, in this great in-between, help us to remember the work of hope. Help us to do the work of justice. Help us to be the people who bring honor to your name and for your kingdom forever and ever. Amen. So what's interesting here is that we've been talking about how in the book of Malachi, it's unique to the prophets in that he, he's having this consistent conversation. There's a discourse where oftentimes the people will complain or say something or make a claim against God and then God will respond. What's interesting to me is that at the end of chapter 2 here, he's just done kind of a, a reading the riot act to the priest, right? And all the things they were doing wrong and to the people. But what's interesting here is when he starts in verse 17, Malachi does something that I think is interesting because I'm not quite sure God is as weary as Malachi is. Because I read this time and time again when this thought came to me and I was like, there's nowhere in this that, that, that God says I am weary. And I think as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that should give us a little bit of breath, right? Because I think, it, it, I think that we as Christians tend to be more embarrassed for God than God is embarrassed. I think we as Christians tend to be more weary of God than, than God is weary. I am grateful that God does not get weary of me. I am grateful that when I fall short, God doesn't go, ah, there you go again. I am grateful that our God is forgiving. There's so many of us, right, who as Christians, and we have to kind of check ourselves on this because we know we're not as bad as the other guys. When we hear the bad things they do, we're like, oh, my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Or, oh, my gosh, I'm so weary of Christians misrepresenting him. God, there's righteous anger. Don't get me wrong. But we got to check ourselves that our righteous anger does not become I'm better than them. Or I'm a better Christian than them. Or at least I'm not as bad as these kind of Christians, right? I'm not doing this kind of thing. But nowhere in this passage is God says, yes, I, Yahweh, am weary. But I think it's real because Malachi scans the situation. He's like, y'all got to be, y'all got to be tiring God. Like, y'all are exhausting. Like, you've wearied God. You know how hard that is to weary God? I would argue it's not possible. And I'm not making that up. I'm pulling that from Scripture. Because you'll remember what we read in Isaiah 40, right? Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even the youth grow tired and weary. Even young people stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God does not get weary. But we can get weary for God. When we as Christians embarrass God. Or we as Christians don't live the way we're called to live. So, so Malachi surveys the situation and, and his response is like, man, y'all are exhausting. You must be wearying and tiring God. But if God does not get weary, what does Isaiah teach us? Isaiah teaches us that not only does God not get weary, but God empowers us when we're weary, when we're tired. 
when we have no more power, when we're weak, when we stumble, when we fall. And why is all of this important? It's important because in the discourse that's happening between God and his people, Malachi has something to say. And I don't think it's, it's, it's insignificant that Malachi is saying God is weary because I think we have to own up that sometimes Christians embarrass us. That sometimes we get weary of what we as Christians are doing and how we're living. Sometimes we're the ones who get weary. The work for us is to not to put that weariness on God. Because just like we need the grace of God, they need the grace of God too. And sometimes the work from us is not to, to put our noses in the air, but to get back down on our knees. Not to say, God, at least I'm not a sinner like them. But to say, God, I pray that you forgive me as you forgive them too. God does not get weary, but we can get weary of God. Or we can get weary about what people are doing to God. And what is this weariness that comes from? Malachi sees their false claims of neglect and says that if you really believe this, y'all are going to be exhausting to God. What did the people believe? Well, they believed that, that evil was all around them, so God must be pleased by it. I find it very, very interesting that when good happens, it's because we did it. But when bad happens, why can't God stop it? Right? Think about the last time something good. I'm not even talking about us as Christians. I'm just talking about in the world in general. Think about the last time something amazing happened for humanity. And when did the world say, like, wow, God was just incredible in this. Right? But if anything bad happens, we're like, I just can't believe God let this happen. And there's, 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 a, there's an interesting juxtaposition here, right? Because we see the evil. And our response is like, God, why are you letting it happen? You must like it. You must think it's okay. It must be good in your eyes. And in fact, the, 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 the neglect that they claim here is that God is pleased with evil, which doesn't track with any of the scriptures, which doesn't track with Yahweh, right? We sing it, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What God has revealed is not someone who's pleased with evil. What God has revealed is not someone who, who is happy at evil all around them. In fact, what are a few things that we learn in Scripture that's good in God's eyes? It's not evil. It's, it's, it's not like the, 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 the world going up and doing as not as it should. And so they call out now, where is the God of justice when evil is all around us? Why are you pleased with this evil? But if God is Yahweh and he was and is and will be, and if God has revealed us to us who he is, where are some of the things that we see in Scripture that's actually good in God's eyes? Creation. Remember the Genesis narrative? How many times that God created and it was good? And it was good to the eyes of God? Creation without sin is seen as good in God's eyes. That's not evil. What's another one? Children or God's people who are without sin are seen as good in God's eyes. Last week when we talked about covenant. When they were faithful to the covenant, that was good. That was pleasing to God. When they were not faithful to the covenant, that was not good. In fact, there's an there's a example in, 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 in their recent history of, of some of their kings, right? If you go back to the Chronicles and Kings, you'll see the evils who did evil in the eyes of the Lord and the kings who were good. We know that when we're faithful to God, that's good in the eyes of God. How dare they say God is okay with evil or God sponsors evil or God is pleased by evil because all we know in Scripture is that the good things that God created— the things apart from sin, the people without sin, that is what is good in the eyes of God. In fact, I don't know if you remember Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah is one of my favorite people in the scriptures because he is chronicled by what? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. 
And what did he do? A lot of things, right? Hezekiah was, was one of the ones who, who, who he was not just good, but he reopened the doors of the temple. He repaired the temple, even though the people had let it go to, to just destruction. He called the priests back to holy worship of God. In fact, he reestablished faithful worship. One of the things you'll see between Kings and Chronicles is that Kings tends to be the historian. Chronicles seems to be the artist, right? Like everything's good to the chronicler, right? Like it doesn't matter how bad it is, they'll sing a song about it and make it feel good. So a lot of times uh, uh, scholars will be like, well, if you really want to know what it is, don't go to Chronicle because that's always good news, right? Go to Kings, right? And this is what Chronicles said about uh, Hezekiah. Two lines. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. That's the fluffy version. This is what the historian said in Kings. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Same thing, right? But then they add more. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among the kings of Judah, either before or after him. That is what the historian said about Ooh, my daughter's hair is on me. That's exciting. It's tasty. Hezekiah is chronicled in the fluffy version with one line. And the historian is so impressed that he was so good in the eyes of the Lord that they talked about all the things he did. Not just restoring the temple, but actually getting rid of the idols. Not just calling the people back to worship, but calling the Levites back to worship. Not just calling everybody back to worship, but by establishing the God of Israel as the God of Israel. Those are the things that are good in God's eyes. So when they call out and say, where is the God of justice? We need a little bit of Hebrew. The word they're using here is mishpat. And mishpat has this connotation not just of justice, but the connotation of mishpat is justice in the eyes of the Lord. So it's not just what we think is right. It's what God says is right. So it's ironic to me that they say, God, you like evil, but where are you the God who sees good? It doesn't add up. Where is the God of Mishpat, who sees good in the eyes and says it's good as justice, but everything is evil and that's being pleased? Mishpat is doing what is right, is doing what is lawful, is doing what is good in God's eyes. We get this from the law. In Deuteronomy 24, there's a whole chapter about if you're going to do God's Mishpat, you better be taking care of the poor. You better be loving the widows and the orphans among you. And most of all, arguably, you better be loving the foreigners among you. Why? Because you were foreigners and aliens in Egypt. The law and doing God's mishpat was not just saying, I have hope in the Lord. It was actually loving the poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the least of these. That was the work of mishpat. Ezekiel 34 actually calls the people back, and God puts them on trial again. And here in Ezekiel 34, God says, you even my priests, you my people, my priests, you have not done my mishpat. When I look at you, you have not taken care of the poor. You do not love the widows. You do not love the orphans. And you're American. Oh, I'm sorry. You don't love the aliens and the illegal aliens, as you call them, right? You don't love the foreigners among you. That's what God accuses them of in Ezekiel. And you know what God says in Ezekiel that's amazing? He says, you know what? If you don't take care of them, I will. I will be their shepherd. One of the things that's beautiful about Jesus is Jesus says nothing that Yahweh hasn't already said. 
We love to say, well, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He's literally just repeating what God the Father promised to his people. And in Ezekiel 34, God says, you have not done my mishpah to the poor, to the widows, to the immigrants, to the strangers, to the, to the women, to the orphans. I will be their shepherd. And after he says that, right, it's a reminder to all of us. Let not the injustices we see, let not the sin and darkness we see blind us from seeing who God is. Because if the injustices, if the darkness, if the sin all around us blind us from seeing who God is, we'll start believing that the darkness, the sin, that the injustices is all there is. It's all there is. Let not the injustices we see all around us blind us from seeing Yahweh God. And it's with this background and framework that the Malachi and God through Malachi introduces a reintroduces himself as the God of justice. I'm the one who sees good in a world without sin. I'm the one who sees good when my people are faithful to me and to one another. I'm the one who sees good when they take care of the poor, the orphans, the foreigners, the aliens, the, the widows. I'm the one who sees good when I not only shepherd them, but they shepherd themselves. It is this God of hope, this God of mishpat, who introduces hope. And how does he do it? He does it by announcing three messengers to come. And this is fascinating. Because the first one he says is, I will send y'all my Malachi to prepare. And I always laughed at that because I'm like, that's interesting. Because if I read this in English, it's like, I will send you my messenger, right? But if my name was Malachi, and I'm like, I will send you my Malachi. It's like, well, who are we talking about here, right? And now a lot of us, years later, <laughs> understand this first messenger to be John the Baptist. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus pretty much confirms that and says that, right? The first messenger is John the Baptist. But I want us to kind of take a step back from our Christian understanding and put ourselves in the home, in the place of those first listeners. They don't believe that God is truly the God of justice. They don't believe that, that evil will not win. They don't believe that light is already shining. They don't believe that God actually cares. So what is God's response to them? It's not to grow weary and to shun them. God provides an answer three ways. He says, the first thing I'm going to do for y'all is I'm going to send you a messenger. And what will this Malachi do? Well, back then the messengers would go before the king arrives. One of the things that they would do is, I was going to say bullhorn, but I trust you, trust me, they didn't have bullhorns back then. They probably just had louder voices than even me, right? But one of the things that the messengers would do would announce that the king is coming, right? And I always thought that was weird as a kid that I realized that whenever, like, an aunt and uncle came to visit, I would get the Malachi from my aunt and we'd have to clean everything, right? It was just like, they're coming! And everyone scrambled, right? Throw the toys in the closet or something, right? But the thing is, the first job of this messenger was to announce the king is coming. The second job of this messenger was to kind of map out the route, right? And it wasn't just the idea of, let me just say where they would walk, but it was more the idea of, hey, this is what they're coming. It's kind of like a softener, you know? Before the hard truth comes, it was like the appetizer before the big meal, right? The idea here was to map the road they would walk on, but also more than that, to prepare the people's hearts for the king to come. The third thing that the messenger would do was to exactly clear the path. Now, in back then, it meant physically, you know, they didn't have pen dot, and I know pen dot is the most efficient of all the dots, you know. I just said that because there might be somebody who works here for pen dot. We'll go with it, right? 
It's, more, it's very efficient, that pen dot. I love driving on that pen dot. Potholes are my friend. But yeah, like the job, the job of the messenger was to announce the king is coming, to prepare the people's hearts that the king was coming, but then lastly to clear the paths. In, in ancient times, especially in that part of the world, like they would have a lot of rainy season. And during the rainy season, it's like living here on 2nd Street or living by the river, right? Like the trees, everything just fall on the road, right? Like their job was to go and to clear the path, right? To physically clear the path. Why is all of this important? Because God is trying to let his people know that I heard your complaints about me not being truly the God of justice. I heard your complaints that when Haggai prophesied that the Messiah is to come and God is coming, you didn't believe. When Zephaniah prophesied it, you didn't believe it here. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a messenger, my Malachi, my prophet, who will take the burden and his burden will be to announce that the king is coming. To map out the route and prepare your hearts and to clear the path so that the king can come through. That is the first messenger. The second messenger is called the messenger of the covenant. And what's interesting here is in the Hebrew, we kind of miss this in English because you see Lord, 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 right? But in essence, in the Hebrew, he says, uh, I'm going to read it directly, actually. He says, um, the Lord Adonai will come, right? But who can endure the day of the coming? Actually, I'll go back. I will send my messenger who prepared the way before me. This is verse 1. Then suddenly the Lord Adonai you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Sovereign, the Lord Adonai. Why is there a shift? He's never used Adonai before. It's always been Yahweh, right? It's always been God the Father. Why the sudden shift? It's because the second messenger is the Messiah to come. The second messenger is the first coming of that Messiah who will not only establish and, and be a messenger of the old covenant, but through his body, through his sacrifice, will bring into effect a new covenant. Jesus is coming. That is the message of hope he wants them to have. I will send a messenger who will prepare the way, prepare your hearts, clear the path. And then after that one comes, the Messiah will come to you. The Lord Adonai will come to me, Yahweh's temple. And then comes the third messenger. And this is where it gets fascinating because I think Joel does this too. But a lot of times in the Old Testament, when the prophets see visions of the future, right, and this is going to stretch a lot of us, right? But when they see visions of the future, they're not just talking about Jesus coming to live on earth. They're also talking about the revelation that's kind of similar to what John had. They're talking about seeing heaven at the end, right? Isaiah 2 is another example of this, right? But Joel and, and Malachi here, and one, some reading, some, some commentarians will say they, they jumbled the two. I don't think they jumbled the two. I think that God is giving instances and glimpses of his full story that the people at the time even didn't uh, understand. Because remember, even Malachi himself, remember earlier Malachi in chapters 1 and 2, when he says your worship isn't good enough, what will God do? God will go out and be worshipped by the trees, right? The trees will clap their fields. Remember Kenny's story? But like, God will go out to all the nations so all the nations can worship him. There's no way Malachi truly understood that God desired not just Judah, but the world. He could enough. It just was not in his purview. It's almost like taking someone 2,000 years ago in ancient Jerusalem and be like, you know where the most Christians are going to be? Africa. Right? Like there's no scenario where they'd be like, yes, that sounds about right. 
You know, the Africans will be the strongest. Like, like the most popular, like there's no scenario they would see that, right? Like, or, or if you say, you know what's after Africa? Asia. You know, like, there's no scenario in their purview that they would understand that. But God's word still filters out. And so what he talks about as the third messenger is indeed the second coming of the Messiah. And this is fascinating because a lot of times when we as Christians think about Jesus coming back, we think about glory and going to heaven. But that's not what Malachi sees. What does he see? The Messiah will come to clean, to refine, and not destroy. When we think about judgment, oftentimes we think about the separation from good and bad, sheep from ghosts, heaven and hell. But what Malachi sees in this passage is a God who comes in judgment, who sits not on the righteous throne, not on the powerful throne, but on the mercy seat. And the God who sits on the mercy seat comes back here to refine. I don't know much about fire. Ask my brother Joe. I don't know much about fire. I didn't even know that you're not supposed to put water on oil fires. And his skin paid for it. The entire top of his foot. It's beautiful. He still loves me. I don't know how. But he does, right? But the thing about refiner is that when you put the metal in, right, or you're working on it, only the refiner knows when it's done. Only the refiner knows when it's pure. Even only the refiner knows when all the dross is gone. And what's beautiful about this is that when Jesus comes back as this third messenger, as the Messiah in all his glory, not to die but to live and to establish the kingdom, when he comes back, He's coming back as a refiner with the desire to purify and to cleanse you. Even the use of the soap here, right? There's this idea that the laundress soap, the refiner's fire, is God coming back not to condemn but to redeem. And this doesn't mean that there's not judgment to come. But what Malachi is stressing is that when God enters in, we ought not to fear. Because the people who truly love God will be transformed by God. And so when he comes back, he's coming back with a desire to cleanse, a desire to refine. Even the Levites, who he spent a whole chapter berating and saying all the ways they fell short, they too will be purified. And where does judgment come? It comes against sin. And so in the end of verse 5, he says, when I come back, those who belong to me, they're going to be refined. They're going to be cleansed. I am going to redeem them. But the judgment is coming for those who live lives that are not pleasing to me. And I will testify against them. And I will testify not just against the sin that they do, but how they treat one another. The sorceries they choose to believe in. The unfaithfulness that describes their lives. The lies that they live to tell. I will judge them because they have decided to take advantage of the poor. Because they have oppressed the widows and the fatherless and the orphans. Because they have deprived the orphans of justice. And what's interesting to me here is that he ends by saying, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I think there's two things that's really important about that. One is that if you're not living in a way that's pleasing to God, God will judge you. But those of you who choose to follow God, 
who choose to let the spirit come in and be refined by the fire. Those of you who give your lives and put it on the altar for God to do his work on you. For those of us who live not lives of lies, but built on the truth that is Jesus Christ. Who live lives not based on unfaithfulness, but faithful to who God is and who God calls us to be. Who live not following the lies of this age, but the truth of the gospel. For those of us who live not to oppress the least of these, but to love them. Not to shun the foreigners among us, but to welcome them in. Not to harm the fatherless, the orphans, the least of these, but to actually welcome them into the family. Those of us who live like that ought not to fear the Lord. The oppression will be testified against, but we don't have to fear. And I love that because so much of the Old Testament narrative is do not fear or fear the Lord your God. Right? So much of the Old Testament story is, is fear the Lord your God. You should live in fear. And we, we kind of try to Christianize it and be like, well, that just means adoration, right? And, and holiness and, 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 and kind of knowing that God is, is up there and he's holy, right? But no, it also meant fear too. <laughs> like, like it also meant fear too. Read the Old Testament sometimes or read Revelation when Jesus comes back. It also means fear too. But I love that in this passage, Malachi, or God and Yahweh through Malachi is saying, when I come back, you who belong to me do not have to fear. You who are faithful do not have to fear. You who love me and love the least of these, you do not have to fear. But I also love that he's saying that you may think evil is winning, but you don't have to fear this age. One of the things I remind myself when I get hard news or I see the world falling apart, I try to remind myself of two things, right? And it's become kind of a nice coping mechanism, right? When something terrible in the world happens, I, I force myself to say it. The true light is already shining. The true light is already shining. The true light is already shining. And the other thing I force myself to believe in the light of, of so much darkness is that Jesus wins in the end. That we will win in the end. There's so much of our life, right, that we characterize by all the losses we've had. All the ways we fell short. All the ways the world's falling apart. But guess what? In the end, it's not sin that wins. It's not darkness that wins. It's not destruction that wins. It's not hate that wins. It's not oppression that wins. It's Jesus and his kingdom that wins. And I hold on to that. So in the midst of all this, Malachi wants us to know, like the people to know, do not fear. If you're faithful to God, God will be faithful to you. Do not fear the evil around you. Do not fear this age. Why? Because the light is already shining and we win in the end. I think even deeper than that, maybe more personal than that, I also think there's a hint in this passage. If we truly love and trust and rely on God, I think Malachi is calling the people and us. To not fear where we are and what we have done. There's so many of us who keep defining ourselves by the worst things we've ever done. There's so many of us who keep defining ourselves by all the ways we fall short in our relationship with God. There's so many of us who define ourselves by all the ways we don't stack up. We don't reach God's threshold. We're not good enough. There's so many of us who are defined by what other people say about us or what we say about us and not by who God says we are. 
You're indeed God's workmanship, God's masterpiece. You are not just a child of God. You're the one that he took his time to artfully craft you. Even in this life now, when you give your life to him, you're the one he's refining. And yes, it might come through fire. And yes, it might need some soap to cleanse and wash you. But he's the one who's never leave you or forsake you. He's the one who promises to always be there for you. Do not let the fear of what you've done keep you from experiencing the grace and mercy and love of God. Do not let the fear of what's been done to you keep you from experiencing the faith and mercy and grace of God. You are not the worst thing you've done. You're not the best thing you've done either, but we'll talk about that in another sermon, right? You are not the worst thing that you've done. And if you look at your life and you survey your life, and I know I do this a lot, it's just like, I just feel like I should be further along on this. I just feel like I should be better at this. I, I should be better in my walk. I should be reading my Bible more. I should be praying more. You know, I should be doing what? You've never stacked up. It's never been about you, right? Like, like you've never been perfect. You've never perfectly walked with God. It doesn't mean don't try. It doesn't mean don't work on it. But it does mean stop beating yourself up. God graces you. God loves you. God grants you mercy. God welcomes you home. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good our God is. We can no longer allow ourselves to be defined by the worst that we've done. And I'm not saying that excuses the worst that we've done. I'm not saying there's not consequences from the worst that we've done. I'm just saying that God forgives us, and it's time we ought to start forgiving ourselves too. Amen? And the last thing I want us to hold on to is that in the you catastrophe, there's turning point, there's hope, and then there's work. There's work we all have to do. So my challenge for us this morning is that we ought to be embracing the work. And so for some of us, that means that we have given our life to Jesus, but we still got to give our lives to Jesus. That we've believed in our heads, but we've not given him our minds. We've not given him our bodies. We've not given our hopes, our dreams. We've not given him all of ourselves. We've not placed it at the altar. We've not said, God, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. We've not said, God, I give you on the altar. Refine me, purify me, cleanse me. We've not said, God, I want to be more like you. So there's some of us this morning that the work is presenting ourselves, offering ourselves up, laying ourselves down at the feet of the Lord, on the table of the Lord, so that God can refine and cleanse us and make us more like Jesus. That's the work. And if you're still on this side of heaven... You still got that work to do. Amen? Right? Like, none of us have been like, well, actually, <laughs> I got a 66. I'm good now. <laughs> like, God wants you to get 100. And the 100 only looks like Jesus. So if you got a 66, you got a way to go. If you got 99, you still got a way to go. Right? Like, there's work for all of us to do. Embrace the work of God refining you to make you more like Jesus. But there are some of us, maybe by the sound of my voice, and maybe in this room, who before we can fully give our lives, ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our, our gifts, our skills, our abilities, all that we are to God, we actually got to give our life to God. There's some of us who maybe we grew up in church, or we like the church, or we like listening to church, or singing the songs of church, but when we sat down this morning, we said, have I actually truly given my life to the Lord? Because I believe scripture says, now is the day of salvation. I believe that today is the day of salvation. And I think for all of us, 
If you don't want to fear the messenger, the Messiah, Jesus coming again, today is a day of salvation. If you've never said, Lord, forgive me of my sins, forgive me I fall short, I give my life to you. Today is a day of salvation. All of us ought to not just make that decision, but make that decision freely. And for those of you who said, I made that decision years ago, guess what? You might be at 76. You're still not at 100 because that has to be an everyday decision. And I know this is cheesy, but I think all of us, part of how we take that step is we ought to be embracing the justice of our Jesus. Last month, I guess two months ago, we went to a conference in, in California, and Sung Chun Ra, who's this brilliant theologian, uh, talked about how it's only within the last 100 years that Christians have separated justice from Jesus. It's only the last 100 years that Christians have been audacious enough to be like, you know what, that's social justice. Because when you look at Jesus and why Jesus said he came, you go to Luke chapter 4, you will see social justice. If you read through the gospel, you see what Jesus does by loving the hungry, the blind, the, 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 the broken, even the dead. You'll see social justice. It's only in the last 100 years when we felt great about ourselves that we stand on our little soapbox and say, like, well, that's social justice. I just believe, right? I believe the gospel. Do you believe the gospel if you're not doing Jesus' justice? And that's not new. That's the same claim that Malachi is making to the people. How dare you call out from the God of justice when he's been just to you, but you haven't been just to your neighbor. How dare us say we believe in Jesus if we're not willing to work for the justice of Jesus. So embracing the work for all of us must also mean, how am I loving the poor? How am I loving the orphans among us? How am I loving the least of these in my society, in my culture, in my country, in my neighborhood, in my city? How am I doing the work of God's justice? Because that's what we all ought to be doing. So embrace the work personally. How can God transform me? But then go out and say, how can God use me to transform my world? Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to end singing a song that, that might be new to some of us. It's called Refiner. And, and if you don't know this song, I want you to, to maybe use this time to, to let the words wash over you. Just read the words and to pray and meditatively think on them. But this song is going to invite us back to the altar to do that first part of the work, right? The first part of actually placing ourselves on the altar, asking God to refine and purify us. But for all of us as we sing, may we be reminded and hold on to and actually live out that God does not desire to save you for you. That God does not desire to refine you for you. God's not interested in a better Hank, but he's interested in one more person living for the kingdom. God's not just interested in your best version of you. You might be. The world might be. I know my spouse is, right? Like she would love the best version of Hank, right? I mean, that'd be great. But God is interested in another kingdom worker, another doer of Jesus' justice. That the Lord Adonai, the Lord Messiah, that when he comes, that we ought to not fear because we can say, God, with my life, with my words, with my gifts, with my skills, with my abilities, I have loved the way you loved. I have served the way you served. And I have died to myself the way you died for me. Let's stand and sing together. I also like the, the pastors are up front. If you'd like to, to pray for anything you've got going on, maybe in response to the service or, or anything that's happening in life, please, please come up. We'd love to pray for you for that as well. But as we sing this song, when we go to the altar, 
offering ourselves up as a sacrifice, but also pledging ourselves to do the work of God's justice. Let's stand and sing together. Sacred. 
between Malachi and, and John the Baptist or even the Gospel of Mark, who we think is the first one, is 400 years. 400 years after this message that John the Baptist or the, Messiah, the messenger is coming, 400 years before Jesus comes the first time, they get this message of hope. And for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, it's been five times that. It's been 2,000 years from, from the ascension to the final adoration, right? 2,000 years we've been living in the in-between. But as we wait, may we wait with hope and expectation. May we wait knowing that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we can come home if we've never come home again. That we can come home if we ran away. We can come home if we've been so bogged down by the darkness around us, the darkness inside of us, that we can come home again. In 2,000 years, we've been waiting, but we also know we have hope that today is also the day of purification. So my sisters and brothers, may we be willing to not just today, but every single day, offer up our lives on the altar of faith. May we be willing to offer up ourselves and says, God, I give you all of me. Purify me. I want to be tried and purified by you and you alone. May we trust our God to be the refiner, not just to take the dross away, but to prepare us in a way that we can be the true kingdom workers. May we trust in our God to make us not just more like Jesus, but more like Jesus for our world. Amen. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the blessing of hope. We thank you that our hope is not in what we see, but our hope is in who we know. We thank you our hope is not defined by the darkness of this world, by the light that's already shining through your son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, Lord, even through your people, the church. God, we thank you that you have called us to hope. And this hope that we have is a reliance on a God who's good, a God who's merciful, a God who's true, a God who's compassionate, a God who's loving, and a God who welcomes us home. So, Lord Jesus, our Christ, we offer ourselves up to you this morning. For those of us who've already given our lives to you, we want to do it again in a way presenting ourselves to the altar, asking for purification. But, God, we also offer up ourselves this morning asking to be arbiters of your justice. Lord, may we not just call out for the God of justice, but where we see injustice, may we live to make your kingdom come. Where we see poor, may we greet them with love. Where we see broken, when we greet them with healing. Where we see darkness, when we greet them with light. Not healing, not power, not light that comes from us. For greeting and power and light and love that comes from you. Lord, refine us so that we can be a living and an artful and beautiful and wonderful worship for you. Lord, refine us so that we can be a light to the dark that we can be signs of your goodness, that we can be arbiters of your justice. Lord, refine us that your kingdom may come to our world. Refine us and let us always remember that you desire to love all of us. You desire to love the world, but God, you did not save us for us, but for you, for your kingdom and our world. May we walk in that light. Refine us, Lord Jesus. Refine us, our God and Father. Refine us, Holy Spirit. Help us to be the God or help us to be and live in a way that pleases you and pleases you fully and always. Lord Jesus, we love you and in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.